I invite you to turn in your scriptures to John 21. John 21. For us as pastors, as we near the end of this study of the gospel according to John today, um, I know for me personally, and I think for Steve as well, we'd say we wish we had more time. Uh, as you know, we've, we've gone through this series at a very rapid uh, pace. One chapter a week was our goal, and a, a few times we delayed slightly because we felt like we needed to cover something else a little bit more. But the gospel according to John is a, is a rich account of the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in fact, I'll, I'll tell you, it's probably one of my favorite books of the New Testament to study. And there's so much that we have left undone. So we encourage you to go back and study and think through John's account of the life of Christ again, as you're able to. John 21, though, is an interesting chapter for us. In many ways, as we approach John 20 last week in the resurrection, we almost wonder now, well, what's left? What's, what's left to tell? Jesus has risen from the dead. And we know that if you have been in church for any length of time, you know that the book of Acts is coming, where the ascension of Jesus is talked about, and then the Holy Spirit is sent to the disciples, to the apostles, and the early church is established and advanced. And so we wonder, how does John 21 fit in sort of the middle of the story, in a book that almost seems like it came to end. In fact, the last verse of John 20, verse 31, we have the purpose statement of the book. If you're there in John 21, just look up one, one more verse to verse 31, and John writes, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, by believing you may have life in his name. And you think, wow, that would be a, that would be a powerful conclusion to a book. Why didn't it just stop there? And I think maybe the way to bring this to us today would be to ask, simply ask the question, where are you today in your relationship with God and with Jesus? Or where are you today in relationship with some other people in your life? Do you have any relationships where you're maybe at a point where there's some tension, some issues that need to be resolved, maybe some reconciliation that needs to happen? What about with God? I don't know everyone who's here today. I don't know your spiritual state or where you're at in your spiritual journey, but, but maybe you know that you have entered today to a church building to gather with God's people to worship Jesus Christ, and you know that you are at odds with God in some way. You know that you've been living a life of sin, and you've been resistant, and you, you've been convicted of this, and you, you know that it's wrong, but yet you continue to press on, and you know that there is something between you and your sovereign creator, Lord. I don't know where you are today. I do know that one of our, um, several of our, our members here, well, two to be specific, have entered in to this time called engagement this week. Mindy and Alex, congratulations. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Actually, I did. Congratulations. <laughs> now, if I could ask you a question, you don't have to respond, because I know the answer already. Mindy, is Alex perfect or Alan, sorry, Alan, Alan, my bad, Alan, sorry, Mindy, is Alan perfect? I'm glad you're engaged with the right guy, and I know Mindy, you responded, of course he's perfect, Alan, is Mindy perfect? Of course, see, affirmative, so John 21 is especially important for you today, to understand the reconciling and forgiving work of Jesus' grace in your life, because you're going to have to start extending that 
grace and reconciliation to one another from the moment you guys get married. And that's a good thing, right? Because our marriages, as we talked about last week, are supposed to be a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of the gospel and the love of, of Christ for the church and the way that the church responds to Christ. And, and so all of us that are married understand this. Maybe we walked in today and, and maybe there was even tension in marriages this morning as you walked in. John 21 has hope for you today. And it's, it's found, it's rooted in the life and the ongoing story of Jesus and what he's doing with his disciples. And that there's hope, not just for reconciliation with God, but between us as humans as well. So, before we jump into the text, though, let me just tell you where we're going. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes it's helpful. As you read John 21, you walk in to the story, and it's very clear that the disciples even have some lingering doubts and questions. There's that verse in the middle of the story that, we, that Steve read. None of them dared ask who he was. <laughs> it is it's very humorous as we read through, and yet it reveals to us that there's still some kind of lingering question or doubt about who this is. There's some things that need to be resolved. There's some relationships that need to be restored and reconciled. See, the story does not end simply with the resurrection of Jesus. As important as that is, there's implications of the resurrection that must be made clear. So if you were to just look at the last three chapters, at, at chapter 19, 20, and 21, we saw in 19 that Jesus is presented as the rejected king. Remember that? He's presented as the king all the way along, and Pilate and the Jews all reject him. And that results in our acceptance before God. Then we have chapter 20, and we saw where Jesus is now represented as the resurrected Lord. He is sovereign over death. He is all-powerful, and he has conquered even death. And here in John 21, we begin to see him now as our Savior, yes, but as a Savior who reconciles us. So he's the rejected King. He is the risen Lord the resurrected Lord, and he is our reconciling Savior in John 21. Here's the bottom line, though, for you. How does this apply to you, right? Because it's a story about the disciples back then and there at some lake called Galilee or Tiberias. What does that have to do with us? There's Peter and there's John, this beloved disciple, but what does that have to do with us? And here's the point for you. Just as Jesus reconciles them, we, who have entered into a relationship with Jesus, have been reconciled for a purpose. We've been reconciled to God for a reason, and as so that we can serve. We have been reconciled to God so we can serve in this life, serve Him, and serve others. And we're going to see that unfold. But, but you don't have to turn there, but let me read to you 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21, because I think Paul picks up on this. as He talks about the new creation life that we have in Christ as we, as we are united together with Jesus in His resurrection. Paul writes this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, so that God 
who was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, he's not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the point here is that Paul is trying to make and say, hey, this new life that we have in Christ, those of us who have been reconciled and united to Jesus Christ have been given a new life. And not, not just sort of an idealistic new life or a theoretical new life, but you have been given a new life so that your life should actually be representing the very righteousness of God to the world. So that when people see our lives, when people see your life, you can implore them. You can beg them. You can plead with them to be reconciled with God. Not because of who you are, but because God has given you his own righteousness and is transforming your very life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15, just before the section I just read, Paul writes this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for Him who died for them and was raised. Again, you see it? Paul is connecting the resurrection life and our reconciliation and the life that we're called to serve. And John 21 is going to put that on display for us in the very time and, and story of Jesus right after the resurrection and the disciples. So, so Paul is just picking up the truth that, that John has accounted for us here in John 21. Now, the story unfolds in a cool way. There's a revelation of Jesus Christ. He appears to his disciples for the third time. I love it. A little note. This is the third time that Jesus appears to reveal himself to the disciples. The, the story unfolds this way. There's this great catch of fish. Jesus addresses Peter's life and John's life. And we're called to enter into that. We're called to enter into that story. Now, here's the question, though. Can you identify with Peter and John and the rest of the disciples in some way today? Can you identify with them? As we have sung already, as we prayed already, do you, do you see your sin alongside of Peter's sin of denial and rejection of Jesus? Because if you, if you don't see yourself in the story, aligning yourself with Peter and with John and the rest of the apostles, then you're going you're gonna to fail to see the import of the, of the story here for you. See, we, we have entered into that sin with Peter. All of our sin, like Peter's denial, his betrayal, is just as bad. We, we are the ones who have put Jesus on the cross. We are the ones that now Jesus must enter the story and draw us back in, pursue us, and come to us and ask us, come, come, eat breakfast with me. For you here, the reality is this. The risen King will accomplish His purposes. He will restore you. He will reconcile you in every aspect to himself. Why? So that you can passionately love God. 
so that you willingly will serve others and that you will intentionally make your life a life that is about making disciples. All right, so let's look at John 21. Let's see this. In some ways, a very humorous story and in other ways, a very compassionate story of Jesus put on display. John 21, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. So the scene is set up. This is probably a week after the Passover feast has ended or sometime in that week. And all the festivities have ended. They left Jerusalem and now they're back home, as it were, in Galilee. And Jesus, Mark records for us, that they were instructed by Jesus to meet him in Galilee. And that's where he would appear to them. But I love this. In the verse, two, uh, verse 1, John records, and this is how this happened. In fact, some of your translations might state that way. This is how Jesus appeared to them. And it's here that I begin to realize that I was reading this week that, that John takes care to slow us down in the story. And he begins to give us what we might consider unnecessary details. Jesus reveals himself again. Okay, we got that, John. You told us. And then he says, now this is how Jesus revealed himself in this way. Okay, got it. Let's go. So verse 2. He lists out the seven disciples who are there. Simon Peter, of course, is listed first, as most often he is. And as most often, as well, he takes the lead in what happens in the rising action. But after this brief introduction again, the narrative slows down, and, and John again includes just a surprising amount of what we might consider mundane details. Look in verse 3. Simon Peter says to them, I am going fishing. Great. They said to him, We will go with you. Great. They went out. That's what you would do. And got into the boat. Yes. In order to fish, you must do these things. And I've, I sat there and I just started laughing to myself as I was studying this week. John, what are you doing? Why the unnecessary phrases? He wants us to slow down. He just wants us to slow down and see the beauty of this story and how Jesus appears for the third time to them and reveals himself and his grace and his mercy, and his kindness to them once more. So, I invite you to slow down. Our lives are busy. Our lives are hectic, crazy. We travel, we run. We jump in the car, we go here, we do this. And it's very, very easy for us just to overlook the fact that God is at work in very small, mundane ways every day to reveal his grace and his mercy and his kindness to us. So just slow down. Slow down. Look at Jesus. And then John, of course, includes that last phrase in verse 3. They're fishing at night, but of course... They caught nothing. One commentator made the fitting observation that in every account of the Gospels, the disciples never catch fish without the help of Jesus. 
Night was the time to fish though, right? Because that's when they come in in the morning and the market opens and you bring in the fish and you sell it to the market and you want to come in with a, a full net. And so I'm sure at this point they're a bit frustrated. You know, John doesn't tell us their emotional state, but we can read into it. We can imagine the scene. They're out there working hard and there's nothing. And just as day was breaking, verse 4, Jesus appears. Jesus stands on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Yeah, is that a statement of, okay, the, the sun is just dawning and it's hard to see? Possibly. That's probably part of it in a practical human level. But at the same time, John's continuing his theme of a misunderstanding. All throughout the gospel, there's been a level in the disciples and everybody else, they misunderstand, they don't see clearly, and then finally Jesus has to bring them to a place of understanding. And, and again, we see that here. They, they don't know it's Jesus, even though they've seen him twice now. Jesus appears. And I love it. In verse 5, he calls out to them, Children! Do you have any fish? And it really, it's going to be read and translated this way. Don't you have any fish? Haven't you got any? You've been fishing all night is the implication. Don't you have any yet? But even the word children, and some of your translations might have it as friends. It's a, it's a term of compassion and affection. And, it, and as we slow down, as we begin to take in the details of the story, we begin to feel the grace and mercy of God once again. Friends. Children. Don't you have any fish? They answered him. There's John's redundancy again. They answered him. What was his answer? No. Simply one word. No. The focus here is on Christ. The focus here is on Jesus. So he says to them, cast the net on the right side, verse 6. Cast it on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, a good question might be, by the shape of most boats, fishing boats at this time, is how do you differentiate between the right side and the left side of the boat? Because they seem to be uh, symmetrical. Again, the implication is Jesus is the only one who knows what the right side of the boat is. Whatever side you're on, it's the wrong side, so throw it on the right side. Don't you have any fish? Well, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And at this point, if it was me, okay, so we give ourselves a lot of credit in the story, right? We think if we're there, if we're in the story, and we hear somebody from the shore casting out orders to us to do something that we've been doing all night long, why would we respond, or who is this person? I think, man, it must be somebody important. It must be Jesus. Let's obey him. But there's no indication of that yet. But they do it. They respond, and there's no dialogue. They just, maybe they're at the point of frustration, like, okay, whatever, Let's just do it. So they cast it. Verse 6. And now they were not able to haul it in. Why? Because of the quantity of the fish. Because of the quantity of the fish. They simply obey. And this is how Jesus appears. This is how Jesus is revealing himself to them once again. He gives a command, they obey, and they see his power and his authority over all things on display once 
again. Now John, verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved. As he has so far, and even in the writing, the account of the gospel of Jesus, he's now going to demonstrate his spiritual discernment, which has been his characteristic throughout. John demonstrates his spiritual discernment upon this miracle catch of fish, and he turns and he recognizes this is the Lord. Verse 7. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. Probably the idea here is he had a, a, some kind of garment on, a, a minimal sort of garment. He pulls it up and ties it up. He wraps it up around his legs so, that, so he can actually jump in the water and swim and not be encumbered by it. And just as John exercises spiritual discernment, so Peter exercises his decisive action, which he's also known for in the book, right? Sometimes without thinking. Now, there's, there's grace in this story too, right? Because we know that Peter's story is not done. You can read Acts and you can see some of his story unfold. But then you also read the epistles of Peter, First and Second Peter, and you begin to see, wow, this man has changed. Even his, the way that he addresses the people in the churches that he's writing to, you can sense how he's grown in his own spiritual understanding and discernment. So where once there was a man of decisive action and he's still there, now he's also grown in his spiritual understanding. And even calling on the churches to grow in their spiritual discernment and not to just stop at their basic faith and understanding, but to grow phenomenal story. Peter jumps in the water. And I love it. The, the, the whole scene has a, a humor about it and just a, a quality about it where John says he throws himself into the water. There's a reckless abandonment about the nature of Peter and coming to Jesus. The other disciples came in the boat, verse 8, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land but about 100 yards off. It's not a far distance, not long. And they got to the land, verse 9. The narrative speeds up. Only Jesus speaks here. There's a fire, there's fish, and there's bread. Fire, fish, and bread. And I'm sure as Peter walks up, he's relieved to see that as the disciples pull in the boat, with the net of fish behind them there, the sight of breakfast is a welcome sight. They got off the land, they see it there, and the fish that's laid out in the bread. And Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Verse 11. The man of decisive action goes aboard the boat, hauls the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Okay, why does John give us all that detail? First of all, I think just to help us see, once again, Simon Peter is all in. Did, did he pull his net up by himself? Maybe, it's possible. But probably not. He probably had some help, but again, he's the leader, he's the initiator, he's, he's jumping on. Maybe some disciples came with him, but... But how is it that he, he pulls up this net by himself when all the disciples couldn't pull the, the net with large fish into the boat? Why, why couldn't they do that? 
But I love the humor of the story here. What does Jesus say to him? Hey, um, would you bring some of the fish that you have just caught? Bring some of them. Peter goes and gets the whole net and pulls it up. And then they count them. This is, this is not normal, I don't think. And I love the number. It's 153. It's just like a random number of large fish. Some commentators try to pinpoint it and give you some kind of symbolic imagery here. It's like, I think that's pressing his text too far. Just, just be okay to say that's a lot of fish, and they were very big. The point here, though, is that Jesus, first of all, empowers them to catch this fish, these fish. And then he calls them into participation with him at this meal. He said, hey, what I've just empowered you to catch, go get some of those fish and bring them up here to be a part of the meal. What I've empowered you to do, I'm going to utilize. What I've just empowered you to accomplish. And here's the lesson for us. This is where Jesus is pointing us, and even as John has recorded, when Jesus says, just as the Father sent me, so now I'm sending you. What's, what is their mission? What is he sending them to do? He's sending them to become fishers of men, catchers of men. And so here it is for us. Jesus is calling them to discipleship, to follow him, to continue this primary task. And he is going to empower them and enable them to do this mission. And Jesus reminds them with this demonstration that his power and authority is sovereign over all things. And he will accomplish his purposes through them. If they will just simply obey. Brothers and sisters, we, we are left here with the power and authority of God to be fishers and catchers of men. We are to be disciple-making disciples. This is the essence of discipleship, to be disciple-making disciples, to continue the mission of the one who has called us. And every disciple is called to this mission, to make disciples. Jesus says then, verse 12, come, come, have breakfast, have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Now they knew it was the Lord. But yet, as I mentioned already, that question, there's a lingering doubt. Can, can we understand this? He reveals his power and authority. He calls them children. He displays his loving kindness and his gracious gentleness with them. Come, have breakfast. They sit, and Jesus, verse 13, he comes and he takes the bread and he gives it to them, and so with the fish. Now, this is just your basic breakfast ordinary meal for them. But we begin to see fear that, that Jesus, the, the risen Lord, the rejected King, this reconciling Savior, is now going to serve them once again. See, this is his character, always the servant. Always inviting us to come, dine with me. Come, eat with me. 
Come into my presence, because if you come to me, I will serve you. And that's exactly what you need. You need me to serve you, Jesus says. And it's a bit reflective, even of the, the form, formality and the formal setting of the Last Supper, where he gave them the ordinance of the communion that we rehearse and that we practice. And just the language, Jesus comes and he takes the bread and he gives it. And he takes the fish and he gives it to them. Jesus is serving them. This is, this is his hospitality. And, and as, even today, as we, many of us are going to participate in home gatherings, we're, we're going to go to one of those homes and we're going to experience, through the body of Christ, some of this hospitality as we sit together and we share a meal together with one another and somebody serves you and somebody serves me and we, we enter into communion and fellowship as the body of Christ. And this is what Jesus has done. This is an example for us. This is why Acts, I think, rehearses this over and over and over again. They're not, they're not just gathering together to study doctrine. That's good. They're not just gathering together to pray. Yes, that's good. But they're gathering together to show hospitality and love to one another. Because this is what Jesus does for us. Come. Have breakfast. And with this, it seems like the entire band of disciples are restored back together to one another and to Jesus himself. And, and then though this last section where Jesus then restores specifically Peter. His sin, his betrayal, his denial was so overt that he needed this special restoration and recommissioning focus. Why? Because, because sin always has consequences, right? I mean, Peter's sin has been obvious to the world. It's obvious to the world for all eternity now. It's recorded for us in Scripture. How do we describe Peter? By many things, but one of them that will always characterize him is that he was the one who denied Jesus three times. See, sin always has consequences. It always has effects. It always shapes how, how people view one another and even the character of, of Peter. But... God's grace is always bigger. And God can reshape your life and even bring you from this place of sin and denial and bring you to a place of forgiveness and restoration and full reconciliation and full ministry profit for His kingdom. So look at this with Peter. This story is very familiar. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, it's as if he pulls him aside, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he's probably speaking about the other disciples, the way that I understand, more than these. Do you really love me more than these other disciples? Really? Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17. 
Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And of course, we, we very quickly pick up on the repetition of the three, the Peter's thrice denial and Jesus' thrice questioning of his love. We see the response of Jesus to him. Well, okay, Peter, if that's true, if you love me, then, then feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. If you really love me, Peter, then, then, then here's the response that I'm looking for then. Love my people. Because that's really going to be how your love for me is displayed. Love my people. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, that you have love one for Now, it's interesting that third time when Peter is grieved in his spirit by this question. Look at what he appeals to, though. Does, does Peter appeal to his own record? Say, hey, look, look at me. See, I love you, and you know I should love you because I've been here at church every week for the last year. I've been baptized. I've given a ton of money, like sacrificially, like a lot. No, Peter, Peter does not appeal to everything that he has done. In fact, he knows that if he tries that, if he goes that route, it's going to fall short. Because his record is very clearly known by everyone. He has publicly, verbally denied that he is a follower of Jesus three times. Why would he appeal to his own record, his own works? He cannot appeal to that. So what does he appeal to? Verse 17, Lord, you know everything. And you know that I love you. For us, John wants us to pick up on the language of the, of the Good Shepherd of John 10. The Good Shepherd knows his sheep. For his sheep hear his voice. And they know him. And they follow him. Peter does not appeal to his own life, his own works, his own ministry... He appeals to the sovereign and gracious knowledge of the Good Shepherd who knows his sheep and calls his sheep. And as we've sung this morning, he will not let any of them perish. But this threefold statement also prepares Peter for what's to come. Verse 18. Jesus responds to this in a very prophetic way and says, Yes, I... You're exactly right, Peter. I know that you love me. And I know that you're my disciple. Now let me prepare you. Because what I've just said, what I've just encouraged you as my disciple, the one who will be a primary representative of the church in this new age, you must understand something. Verse 18. This is what discipleship is going to look like for you, Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, 
you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. That's a bit of a veiled imagery for us, but the picture becomes very clear, especially as we have the words of John and the narrator in verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify him. Now look at this. Jesus finishes with those words. What are they? Follow me. Follow me. Okay, Peter, do you love me? Yep. Feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. Love my sheep. Yes. The implication is, yes, Lord, that's what I will do. So Jesus tells him, okay, but here's what it's going to mean. It's going to be in your life. If you're truly going to lay down your life, if you're truly going to love my sheep, then you're going to have to lay down your life for the sake of the sheep, just like I did. And in an amazing way, John picks up his theme of glory. Remember, Jesus' hour has not yet come to be glorified, and the hour of his glorification is here. And what is that hour of glorification? It is his death. It is his resurrection. It is his cross, and ultimately the resurrection. And here, Peter, it's revealed to him that his death will be a similar glorification of God. And Jesus says to him, you know it's coming. Follow me. Follow me. Now, anyone in the right mind, having understood this, will ask some questions. And so Peter turns, verse 20, and looks around and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and has said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, that disciple, that one who was very close and intimately connected with Jesus within the inner circle and was obviously a a loved disciple by our Lord, Peter sees him and asks the question, well, what about this man? What about this man? (laughs) Jesus responds to him, verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter, it doesn't matter what John's discipleship path is going to look like. It doesn't matter what his destiny will be as my follower for your discipleship. If I am calling you to feed my sheep and willingly lay down your life for my sheep as a demonstration of that love, then you follow me and you trust me. Even if I let John live till my return. Verse 23, just to clarify though, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers and sisters that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So just to be clear, John wants us to know that he is not immortal. In fact, he probably died in exile, alone, abandoned in a similar way that Jesus might have felt on the cross. Verse 24, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that this testimony is true. And we get here to the end of the letter, and we begin to see something. There's a, there's a stamp of approval, on, or the, of the gospel, there's a stamp of approval on the gospel and everything that John has written, but not by himself, which is fitting with the entire gospel where Jesus says, I don't bear witness about myself, but the Father will bear his witness about me, and, and the works that I've done bear witness about me, and, and the Spirit will bear witness about me. And here John, at the end, allows some other people, maybe these other disciples or the, the other people around him in his life, 
they add their stamp of approval to John's words. And they say, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Well, how do they know that? They've, well, they've seen his life for probably 30 or more years, and they've seen that he has totally embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he exalts the glory of God in his life, and he proclaims this truth. And his life and his words have borne evidence of the reality that he speaks. I love it. Would people say that about you? Can, will people at the end of your life say that, yes, oh yeah, they, they proclaimed the truth about Jesus and their life matched it. They, they proclaimed that Jesus was everything and that he should be glorified in everything and there is no hope without Jesus and they lived that out. Like their whole life, their whole being demonstrated that. Or, or will it come down to the end where, where you say that this is your life but then people look at your life and say, well, yeah, he said that, she said that, but... And I, I really didn't see much transformation. I didn't really see much love of God flowing out of their life. John here has brothers and sisters come around and say, we know that his testimony is true. And verse 25. Now here's the conclusion of his gospel, but points us forward to what's to come. There are many things that Jesus did, and if every one of them were to be written, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And of course, it opens the door to what's going to happen in Acts, the ongoing work of the Spirit, the, the church is established and grows. And even now in our lives, in the church age that we're a part of, all of the works of God, all the works of Jesus that he's doing through his people, through his body, even if the whole world were full of books, they would not contain them. So how do we finish? Well, just make, let me make three quick points. This rejected one emerges from the tomb as the risen one so that he might reconcile all people to himself and to one another. And here's the point for us. As we are reconciled through his death and resurrection, we are called, like Peter and John, to love him with our lives with every aspect of our being. Love God with your entire being. We're, we're called to love others, even when they're unlovely, and even when it makes us uncomfortable, we are called to lay down our life willingly for the sake of others. And even as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, we, we are compelled then by God's love for us because he has drawn us in and he has, he's invited us to come and eat breakfast with him, to sit and dine with him, and he serves us and he feeds us. He gives us life. He has taken away our sin through the cross. We're no longer guilty. So we're compelled by all of this love for us in Christ. We're compelled by this. Make your life count. Like John like Peter. Make your life count. Well, how do we do that? Make disciples. Follow Jesus and make disciples. Why? Because you have been reconciled to God and Jesus is your only hope in this life and the one to come.